We're going to dig into this this morning. We're studying through the life of Jesus because there's probably no other person in history that there are more rumors about, that there is more misinformation about. And so we're studying the life of Jesus because we want to know him for ourselves. We want to find out who he really was, what he really taught, what his life and ministry were all about. And today's study brings us to an amazing topic, the topic of baptism. And something amazing happens today. Jesus gets baptized. And many of us have heard of baptism. Many of us have been baptized. But today poses a great question, which is why would Jesus need to be baptized? Why would he, why would he need to be baptized? To pledge allegiance to himself? Wow. How does that work? We're going to learn about the incredible true meaning of baptism today, and it's the first thing that Jesus asks us to do when we decide to start following him. The very first thing he asks us to do is to be baptized. We're going to see what happens in Jesus' life immediately following his baptism, and it's probably not going to be what you're expecting. The last time we encountered Jesus, he was around 12 years old, and the Bible doesn't really tell us about much in his life between the ages of 12 when we last see him and the age of 30 where we encounter him today. But we do know a few things. We know, we know that he's Jewish. We don't really know what he looks like. Uh, we know that the Bible tells us there's nothing extraordinary about his appearance. It's not like everywhere he walks, butterflies fly in constant circles above his head. Uh, it's not like his hair glows or anything like that. He just looked normal. And we know that he followed in his earthly father, Joseph's footsteps to become a tradesman. They called it a carpenter, but they really worked with wood and stone and other natural materials as well. We know that this is Jesus's job. But an interesting point is that Jesus's job is physical in nature. And have you noticed how many of the paintings and movie depictions of Jesus show Jesus, you know, who's about 100 pounds soaking wet and he walks around, you know, sort of like this. When he waves to the crowd, it's pretty much his energy for the whole day, you know. Blessed are you. And he walks off. But, But Jesus had a physical job. And so Jesus would have been a pretty toned, muscular guy, probably with large forearms. And he would have been a pretty toned guy. He wouldn't have been the skinny guy that you see in paintings who's never used his hands to touch anything. You know, you look at the paintings of Jesus and his hands are like the hands that every woman dreams of having. You know, Jesus would have had like rough, rough tradesman's hands and would have been a toned guy. We know that Joseph is present when Jesus is 12, but when Jesus is 30 here, Joseph is gone by all accounts. And so we know that Joseph at some point in between the age of 12 and 30 died. Uh, and all you need to know is that everything about Joseph's death is speculation. There's been a lot of fictional accounts that were written about what happened to Joseph, and sometimes what happens is somebody would write a fictional account in 100 AD. Somebody digs it up, you know, 30 years ago, and they get excited because it's 1,900 years old, and they say, well, it's old, so it must be true, but it was fiction. We don't really know anything about what happened to Joseph. Everything is speculation. It's that simple, but we do know When Joseph died in Jewish culture, the responsibility of caring for the family would have fallen to the oldest son, and that would have been Jesus. So Jesus spent a portion of his adult life as the head of the family, as the primary breadwinner for the family, and the main caretaker of his mother. That's why later on when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says to John, John, behold your mother Mary. When Jesus is dying on the cross, he's asking John to take his role as caring for Mary because he is the primary caretaker of the family, is about to die, and then after that, he's going to be going to heaven. So as we pick up our study today, Jesus is around the age of 30, and he hasn't started his ministry yet. 
And I think what you also have to remember is that despite all the excitement of the Christmas story, all this supernatural stuff happening, they're pretty much back into normal life by the time Jesus is four or five years old. Nothing extraordinary happens between the ages of five and 12, so much that when Mary and Joseph find Jesus at the age of 12, talking about theology and belief with some of the the priests in the temple, they're amazed by how smart he is because he doesn't do stuff like this all the time. And then another 18 years go by where Jesus is, by all indications to all people, just normal. And no matter how amazing something was, when it happened 28 years ago, it fades real quick in the mundaneness of everyday life. Mary and Joseph, my wife and I were talking about this, and we were just saying, you know, they didn't go around telling everybody, son of God, kid's the son of God, probably want to pick him first in dodgeball, son of God, son of God. You know, they didn't do that because remember, when somebody found out that he was being born, they tried to kill him. So when they come back and settle in Nazareth, it's highly unlikely they put a sign outside their house saying, you know, home of the Son of God. They probably don't talk to anybody about it. They don't really tell anybody. And we get some other hints of that because it says things like when things happen that Mary hid these things in her heart. She pondered them. She didn't post them on Facebook. She just kept them all to herself. So even though they've had these miracles, they happened 28 years ago. And I'm sure that some of the the luster of that had worn off over the years. And so people weren't watching Jesus' every move at this time. He's just a normal guy. So the Bible tells us that Jesus comes from his hometown of Nazareth to John the Baptist, who was at the Jordan River, so that John the Baptist could baptize him. And, And we don't know how close Jesus and John were. We know they were second cousins, so they probably saw each other once a year in Jerusalem when everybody got together for the Passover feasts. But at the age of 18, John goes off into the wilderness, and you know, when one of, your, one of your friends goes into the wilderness and starts wearing camel hair and a leather belt and disappearing for years at a time, well, these things cause you to lose touch a little bit. So it, it's been a while. They probably haven't had a lot of interactions over the years, but John knows who Jesus is as a person. But nobody may have ever told John. In fact, it's highly unlikely that anybody ever told John, hey, you know your second cousin Jesus? Yeah, he's the son of God. Do you know that? No, I didn't know. It doesn't really come up at all. But in my, in my mind, I imagine what the scene must have looked like. They knew each other, and Jesus loved John, even from a distance, because John loved the Father deeply, just like Jesus did. But so this is the scene that we pick up today is John is there doing his ministry. And remember, he's baptizing people, telling them, get ready, the Savior is coming. And I imagine Jesus walking with a couple of people up and John sees him in the distance and realizes it's Jesus. And as we're gonna find out, he has a moment where the Holy Spirit just tells him, it's him, it's Jesus, he's the one. I can't imagine the the flood of emotion that comes over John when for a couple of years now he's been baptizing people, telling them to get ready because the Savior's coming, and then it actually happens. Holy Spirit says, there he is, there he is. And that's where we pick up our story today. We're going to be in John 1, and we're going to start in verse 29. And this is what it says. John saw Jesus coming toward him. You imagine his eyes open, his mouth drops. And John blurts out, John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. 
There's a whole lot going on here. John is just saying, that's, that's the guy. That's the guy I've been telling you about. John explodes with excitement. And it's interesting to me that there's a bunch of things going on here. We've got to pick up on. The last time we saw Jesus, he's 12. He's in Jerusalem for the Passover feast where they would have sacrificed the Passover lamb. And when he sees Jesus, Jesus is introduced at the very beginning of his ministry as the Lamb of God. You might want to underline that in your Bibles. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the last time we see Jesus, he's in Jerusalem celebrating Passover. Now we see him again and he's introduced as this is the Lamb of God. And he's not taking away your sins in a token display once a year. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's here. That's who he is. It was not a term ascribed to any other human being on earth on any other occasion. Everybody would have been thinking, well, that's a little weird, a way to introduce somebody. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is your first fill-in on your outline. Jesus is introduced as the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is going to be God's sacrifice on our behalf. Whereas before they would offer temporary sacrifices, every person would offer a sacrifice that was their sacrifice on their behalf to take away their sins for a moment. Jesus is going to be God's sacrifice on our behalf to take away our sins forever. And an interesting quick side note, who's older, Jesus or John? John is older by three months. And yet, as he introduces Jesus, he says, this is he who is preferred before me for he was before me. And so John gets it. He knows exactly who Jesus is. He knows that, listen, Jesus has always existed. Everybody, again, would have been puzzled who knew, maybe, John, isn't John older? And he says, but he was before me. And in verse 31, John says, I did not know him. And that's the clue we have right there, that John didn't know Jesus was the Messiah. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel Therefore, I came baptizing with water. John's saying, I, di I didn't know it was Jesus, but my whole ministry has been a setup for Jesus, getting people ready for Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the one. That's what John is saying. And now we're going to switch over to Matthew chapter 3. We're in John. Matthew is just two books back in your Bible. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 14. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, it says, And John tried to prevent him, Jesus, saying, I, I need to be baptized by you, and you you're coming to me? And this is what I love about John. John's not a hypocrite. He doesn't tell everybody else that they need to repent. And then when Jesus shows up, he goes, I got those sinners ready for you. They're good to go. Jesus shows up, and John says, I I I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I, I need to be baptized by you. What, what are you talking about? You want me to baptize you? That, that's crazy. That's crazy. And remember what John's been doing. John's been baptizing people for repentance. So when John baptized people, that was a display from people saying, hey, I need forgiveness. I need a Savior. And I am going to be waiting in faith for the Savior that's going to come. It was their confession that they were a sinner and they needed forgiveness. So John is thinking, I, I baptize people for repentance. You don't have anything to repent for. What, what are you going to repent for? This doesn't make sense. John doesn't understand what's going on. So what is going on? Why does, why does Jesus need to be baptized? There's a couple of things that we can notice. Firstly, Jesus coming to John to be baptized is the ultimate affirmation of John's ministry. 
It's the ultimate affirmation of John's ministry. It's Jesus putting his stamp of approval on what John has done, validating his ministry, saying this guy is for real. His ministry is for real. And that's a pretty good endorsement, you know. That'd be like, I'm preaching here today, and Jesus shows up, and he's like, you guys need to listen. He's got something to say. That'd be awesome. That's essentially what happens to John. John gets the affirmation of Jesus Christ on his ministry. Secondly, just as we identify with Jesus through baptism, he is identifying with us through baptism. When we're baptized, we're celebrating that Jesus took all of our sins, past, present, and future, and gave us his righteousness. Where we had done wrong, he gave us his cleanness, his holiness, his purity. He gave that, his sinlessness, he gave that to us. The the divine exchange is what it's called. When God the Father looks at the hearts of those who belong to Jesus, he sees your heart as clean as Jesus' heart. And that's what baptism is a picture of. When Jesus is baptized, he was identifying with all of our sin. He was sinless, but he knew that one day he'd carry the sin of every person who had ever lived, past, present, and future. Jesus is identifying with sinners even though he is not a sinner. He's identifying with sinners. And just as we identify with Jesus' righteousness through baptism, he is identifying with our sin through baptism. Verse 15, it says, But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Then John did it. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. One of the most important things in Scripture takes place in this section right here, and I want you to go back in your Bibles. And I want you to underline the word Jesus in verse 16. This is crucial. Jesus in verse 16, the Spirit of God in verse 16. And then in verse 17, a voice. A voice. And this is important because this is one of the rare places in Scripture where we see the complete Trinity present at the same time, at the same place. We have the Father speaking from heaven. We have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and we have Jesus in the water. All three persons of the Trinity are there existing at the same time. This is huge because there's, there's people who like to say things like, well, the Trinity's not really in the Bible. Or there's people who like to say things like, well, the Trinity is really God existing as a different person at different times. But, but here we have all three persons of the Trinity in the same place at the same time. Very, very important part of Scripture. It says the heavens were open to him, and We have no idea what this looks like, but what's implied is not like there were clouds and then the clouds opened up so there was sunshine. This is like a portal opened up between the spiritual heavenly realm and the earthly realm. Like that's what happened, like and the Holy Spirit comes down. Notice that it says like a dove. It doesn't say a dove. This isn't like, I wanna fill you with my power, so here's a bird. That's not what's going on here. Whenever scripture says of something like a dove or like this, it's the writer saying it looked like this, but it was not this. It's something that happens in the book of Revelation a lot where it says like this. When it says like, the implication is it's not that, but it looks like that. 
So the Holy Spirit comes down. It, it looks sort of the shape of a dove. That's how it's appearing to people. But everybody gets the idea, this is not a dove. This is not a dove. And it comes and rests on Jesus. And it's a powerful, powerful moment. It's a peaceful moment, but it's a powerful moment. It's not everybody going like, wow, th- this guy can talk to animals. That's awesome. This is something supernaturally powerful that's taking place. In, one, in John 1, later on, we'll find out when John talks to the Pharisees who, who came to investigate this whole thing, we'll find out that the Father had told John before this ever happened, listen, the Messiah is going to be the one whom when you baptize him, the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon him like a dove. That's an incredibly specific word. John sees that and he tells everybody, that's just one more reason I know. This, this guy is the son of God. He told me it was going to be like this before it even happened. The Father's words over Jesus, this is my son and him I'm well pleased, are a reference to Psalm 2. And I'm going to give you a little optional homework here. Psalm 2 is a really interesting psalm. If you just go read it by itself, it's one of those psalms you'll be like, hey, that's great. But if you're honest, you'll be like, I don't really get it. This is the key to unlocking the meaning of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a conversation between all three persons of the Trinity. And so what's fun is you can go read Psalm 2 and do some homework and try and figure out which person of the Trinity is speaking at which time. And they're all talking about the ministry of Jesus, what Jesus is going to do. The Father is also referencing Isaiah 42 as well, which you can go home and read this week. It's all about the Messiah. But this whole scene is visible to to everybody who's there. The whole scene is visible to everyone who's there. So Jesus gets baptized. There's a multitude of people there to see John. And this is how Jesus kicks off his public ministry. Voice from heaven. When that goes down, I'm pretty sure everyone's thinking, we, sh- we should probably listen to this guy. Like, we sh- you know, we should probably listen. What this is, is this is Jesus' ordination ceremony for ministry. Just like when someone becomes a pastor in some movements, they have a ceremony, they give them a certificate. This is Jesus' ordination. His certificate is the Holy Spirit coming from heaven, resting upon him. Very hard to top that. This is Jesus' ordination. This is his certification for ministry. This is the beginning of his public ministry. But one of the things that I think is most profound about all of this, when you think about it, is that Jesus kicks off his public ministry by acting out his own death and resurrection. He's acting out his own death and resurrection. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament in the Bible, tells us what baptism represents. He tells us that going under the water represents the death of Jesus, and coming out of the water represents Jesus raising from the dead, his resurrection. It's a physical act to signify what's already taken place on the inside of us. And so when we get baptized and we go under the water, we're saying that our old life died with Jesus. Just as Jesus died, our old life died with him. And we're saying that we've been given new life. Just as Jesus rose from the grave, rose from the dead, we've been given new life from the dead through Jesus. We've been raised with him. And that's what Jesus is doing as he gets baptized. He's acting out his own death and resurrection. And that's amazing to me because it's just one of the places in Scripture where we're reminded of the fact that this was the plan all along. And so this is a a life-changing moment for Jesus in his human life on earth. He gets to hear his father audibly speak in the presence of many people, but still there's this undercurrent all the time that his ministry is ultimately about his death and his resurrection. 
And just what hits me about that is the burden that Jesus lived with every day doing his ministry. Every day. I mean, for us, sometimes we get through hard times by telling ourselves, hey, things are going to get better. They're going to get bad first, but they're going to get better. When Jesus says things are going to get bad first, his bad is dying, you know, before it gets better, which is his resurrection. And he lives with this. And when you understand that, it becomes all the more extraordinary that we find Jesus full of joy with people. We find Jesus a person people love to be around. But he knows this is going on in the back of his head. So how does he live like that? I think it's just the fact that Jesus was so connected to the Father. He began every day in prayer to the Father. And I would bet every day Jesus said, would you give me the strength to get through today, to trust you with today? It's amazing when you think he lived with that hanging over his head pretty much his entire life. And I think this is the main reason that the Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Because Jesus has submitted himself to the Father. He's made the decision to be obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. And in being baptized, Jesus is publicly saying, I'm, I'm accepting this assignment. I'm in. I'm, I'm ready to do it. The Father looks on his only begotten Son, who loves him so much that he'll obey him to the point of death. And the Father says, he's saying, that's my boy. That's my boy. He loves me. And I love him because he loves me. That's my boy. Jesus shows us here so beautifully that love for the Father will always result in obedience to the Father. Love for the Father will always result in obedience to the Father. Later on in his ministry, Jesus will very simply say, hey, if you love me, you'll do what I ask you to do you'll do it. It'll just happen. You know, when I ask my kids to, to clean their room and they start coming out with things like, Daddy, I drew you this picture. Isn't that great? Or look what I made you out of Lego. Or come and see the amazing tent fort that I just built in my bedroom. Those are all nice things. But what's the problem? None of those things are the thing that I asked them to do. N none of them are the thing that I asked them to do. And I'm going to be frustrated because they're being disobedient. And even though they might say, hey, I love you. That's why I drew you this picture. As a dad, the truth is I'm thinking, listen, if you love me, do what I asked you to do. Do what I asked you to do. And then do all that other stuff. But don't neglect the one thing I asked you to do and think that doing all this other stuff makes up for it. It doesn't. I, I asked you to do something really specific. And we're so good at that sometimes in life where, where we know there's one thing God has asked us to do in our life right now. There's one thing he wants to work on, one area he wants us to grow in, and we will do everything except that one thing, right? We'll do everything. We're, we're talking about that even this week. It's like, God says, hey, you know, I, I want you to go, just talk to your neighbor. Just go introduce yourself to your neighbor. <sighs> you know what I'm going to do, God? I'm going to go serve at a soup kitchen. That's what I'm going to do. Because I love you, you know. We'll go to these great lengths sometimes to do everything except the one thing that God wants us to do. I see that in my own life all the time. But there's a reason why it's called following Jesus. 
There's a reason it's called following Jesus. We, we can't claim to follow Jesus if Jesus is like, okay, we're going right. We're like, I'm going to go left for a while. I'll catch up when you make your next turn. We're not being very good followers, but it really is that simple. Jesus loves the Father, and so he obeys the Father, and the Father loves him for it. This amazing, loving Father God who, who spoke over Jesus at his baptism is the same God who loves you and who loves me and invited us to be a part of his family. He's invited us to be sons and daughters. And let me tell you this as a, as a brother, just in Jesus, that we all want to be loved. We all want to hear, good job. We all want to feel like a success. We all want to feel special. And we all want to hear that from other people. But no matter how many other people you hear say that, none of that will ever compare to being loved by the Father. None of it. None of it will ever compare to being loved by the Father. Because the love of the Father is the only love that leaves you saying, okay, that's enough. That's enough. Everything else will leave you wanting more. Everything else. I've been married 11 years now. I checked before I shared that stat <laughs> this morning. I've been married 11 years. And I can just tell you, the secret to marriage is not expecting the other person to be enough. I really believe that. The idea is that God is enough. And that's too much pressure to ever put on another person to ask them to be everything. Nobody can live up to that. But God is enough. And so whatever's going on in your life, I want to encourage you that the thing that will satisfy you is available to you today. It's available to you. Don't miss out. Don't miss out on knowing the love of the Father. The truth is, as believers, we should never have to wonder if we matter. Because every time we take communion, it's the blood of Jesus screaming out, you're loved, you matter to the one who matters most. If you don't believe me, take communion is the invitation of God every single time we get together. You matter enough, my son shed his blood for you. So don't ever ask that question again. The cross is the answer to that question. The Bible makes it clear that God wants every single person who believes in him to be baptized by, emergent, by immersion. Uh, you might have seen churches where they do things called altar calls, and we don't do it here yet because it would be kind of awkward because of our size. But some churches do altar calls where it's if you want to respond, if you want to give your life to Jesus, come forward, come to the altar. If you could cry, that would be preferable. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that different churches do, but what's interesting is the Bible says the way we publicly show that we've made the decision to follow Jesus is through baptism. That's what we see in the Bible. People are baptized. That's how they announce, I've made the decision to follow Jesus. It's what we see in the Bible. It's our public profession of faith. Baptism, our public profession of faith. So even at the end of the service today, if you want to give your life to Jesus, if you want to become a follower of his for the first time, I'll be asking you to raise your hand. That's just so that I can make sure we get you a Bible and some good things before you leave. But your public profession, your announcement is baptism. That's what the Bible tells us. So if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning and you've never been baptized, let me tell you emphatically, you need to be baptized. On the back of your connection card, there's a spot where you can mark that you want to be baptized. Mark it right now if you've never been baptized. 
Because here's the thing. It's the first thing Jesus asks us to do. The very first thing. You don't want to start your relationship following Jesus by Jesus says, okay, first thing I want you to do. You're like, no. That's a really bad start to following Jesus, right? Just being very blunt about it. And if your answer is no, then you might need to ask yourself the question, have I really decided to follow Jesus? He says, okay, let's go. I'm mm, going to sit this one out. I'm going to sit this one out. It's the first thing he asks us to do. We have a baptism coming up in November. Sign up. It would be an amazing thing. You'll have lots of time to invite people you know to be present on this special day. It's going to be a benchmark moment in your faith. If that's you, make sure you mark your card today. I don't want us to miss that in any way. We do it because Jesus asked us to do it. That's pretty much a good enough reason. Jesus asked us to do it. I want to take two minutes and just address two of the most common questions about baptism because you're going to get these questions about baptism from somebody sooner or later. So firstly, let's go straight to the controversial one. Does christening count? Does christening count? Does it count to be sprinkled as a child? And to take... To give you the answer to that, we have to take a straightforward look at what the Bible says. What the Bible says baptism is. The Bible says that baptism is an outward sign of what's taking place on the inside of an individual. Let me be blunt. A six-month-old child cannot make the decision for themselves that they are a sinner that needs forgiveness by Jesus Christ, and they've made the conscious decision to walk as a follower of his regardless of the cost. They can't do that. I don't care how smart you think your kid is. Your kid cannot do that at six months old. They can't make that conscious decision. And somebody can't make it for them. And so the truth is that wherever that's practiced, if you trace the origins of it, you'll find it's never mentioned in the Bible, ever. It's only immersion in the Bible of adults. And so when you trace the origins of christening, you'll find that at some point, one person decided, yeah, this counts. Yeah, this counts. And we want to make sure that we stay faithful to the word of God. So if you've been christened, you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized to reflect the decision that you've made. With infants, we practice something called dedication, and that's when the parents bring the child up, and they're basically asking the church to pray a blessing over them as parents and a blessing over their child. They're saying, it is our desire that our child would grow to know the Lord. And we'll pray over them, and we'll pray a blessing over that child. And that's what we do for infants. But you need to be able to make the conscious decision yourself if you're going to be baptized. Somebody else can't do that for you, and so you can't do that as an infant. Secondly, second most popular question about baptism is, must I be baptized to be saved? Jesus fortunately answers this question on the cross for us. He has one of the thieves hanging next to him. One of the thieves believes in him, puts their faith in him. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he doesn't say, or at least you would be if you were baptized. He doesn't say that. Wah, wah, you know, That's not what happens. So he doesn't have the opportunity to be baptized, but he still ends up with Jesus in paradise. So it's not required for salvation, but that was kind of an extenuating circumstance, right? He had a valid reason. Why weren't you baptized? I was dying on a cross. Okay, you know. For us who are without excuse, we should be baptized because Jesus asked us to do it. It's just that simple. It's not what saves you. It's your outward declaration to the world, to your fellow believers, to your church, to your family, that you've made the decision to be a follower of Jesus. It's an outward celebration of what's already happened on the inside of you. So Jesus has just been endorsed by God the Father, 
via supernatural booming voice from the heavenly realms. The multitude have seen the Holy Spirit descend on him in power in the form of a dove. His public ministry on the earth has begun. Jesus is now full of the Holy Spirit, being led of the Holy Spirit in a greater way than ever before. And during his life on earth, this was undoubtedly a mountaintop spiritual experience for Jesus. This was a great, encouraging day for Jesus. And he's surrounded by people who are followers of John who are waiting for his arrival. So the response to the start of his ministry is incredibly encouraging. It's that this is going to happen. These people are going to be saved. Jesus gets an enormous encouragement when he's baptized as people begin to follow him. Everything seems to be coming together. He's had a breakthrough. He's on a whole nother level now. How interesting... It is what happens next then. If you'd like to flip to the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Luke 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And a lot of unexpected things are happening here. Firstly, we go from a a spiritual mountaintop experience into intense temptation in the wilderness. This happens a lot in life. I don't know if you've noticed even on the spiritual side of things that you seem like you've just had a breakthrough. Things are just coming together. Now it's going to be smooth sailing and you, you hit a wall. You go right into your next challenge. You, you turn a corner expecting to see, you know, uh, the lily of the valley, just something beautiful, a flowing meadow of life and wonderfulness and comfort, and you, you walk straight into a crisis, straight into a challenge. So why does this happen? You can understand so much when you begin to ask the question, what is God's greatest goal for our lives? If we're honest, most of us believe God's greatest goal for my life should be making it awesome. It should be making it comfortable, should be making it uh, easy, successful, just awesome. That should be God's greatest goal for my life. What is God's greatest goal for our lives? It's quite simply to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. The Father's goal for each of us is that we would become like his son, Jesus Christ. What the Bible tells us in the book of Romans is mind-blowing. It tells us that that work will actually be completed when we arrive in the presence of God. The Bible is scandalous when it describes what actually is going to happen to us when we arrive in the presence of God. The idea is that when when people look at Jesus and people look at us in heaven, they will look at us and say, oh, they must be brothers of his. That's how close we are. That's how amazing the transformation is that takes place in us. They don't look at us and go, oh, that must be God, but who the heck are all these people? We look so much the same. The Bible describes us as being like brothers, that Jesus is the first among many brethren. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And that process begins the moment we decide to follow Jesus. God goes to work making us more like Jesus, and it's a work that he's going to finish. And the truth is that we don't grow, we don't change, we don't mature when things are comfortable. I mean, we all wish we did, right? We all wish that, you know, there was an exercise system that says, step one, sit on the sofa 
30 minutes later, check out your new six-pack. I mean, we'd, we'd all buy that product, right? And, and we all wish that life was like that. You know, we wish that it was, our character was like that. Got an anger problem? Enjoy a comfortable life and discover new inner peace. You know, and it, but we just don't. When life is comfortable, when life is easy, we acquiesce, we become apathetic, we just stop growing. Whenever you work out, what you're doing is you're stressing the muscles in your body. You're breaking them down so that they can be built back stronger and better than before. Without stress, without tension, without stretching, there is no growth. We don't grow on the mountaintop, we grow in the valley. It's the hard truth of life. And if God's greatest goal is to make us like Jesus, well, he can't leave us on the mountaintop, can he? He'd love to. He'd love to. I really believe, man, God would love us all to be millionaires, healthy, wealthy, and happy. He'd love that. But he's even more concerned with us becoming like Jesus. He's even more concerned with us becoming like Jesus. And as we become more like Jesus, we learn to rejoice during those times of crisis. This is why the Apostle Paul says things like, listen, rejoice when you're going through hard times. Because you know that what God does inside of you during those moments will change who you are. It'll develop perseverance. And eventually you grow and you still go into crisis, but you learn to handle them better because you learn what Jesus in you looks like during those moments. And you discover that you can have peace and joy in those moments as you keep growing. And you say, listen, this, this is killing me, but bring it on if it makes me more like Jesus. Because that's who I want to be. Notice this, that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. He's being led by the Holy Spirit, and he finds himself in the wilderness. This is mind-blowing that the Holy Spirit is the one who leads him into the wilderness. And yet so often we look at our lives and we say, well, what, what am I doing wrong that I'm here? Sometimes it's our own making, but sometimes the Holy Spirit led us to this place in life. And it's simply not true that the Holy Spirit only leads you through easy paths. It's just not true. So Jesus is led out into the wilderness for, for a spiritual retreat, maybe some uh, hot rock therapy, a little R&R, not to be tempted by the devil. Have fun with that. So the Father knew everything that Jesus would face in the future. He knew. He knew all the temptations, all the challenges, all the trials. And because he's a loving father, he is preparing Jesus for the challenges to come. As great as the challenges in the wilderness would be during his temptation, they, they pale in comparison to the challenges Jesus would face on the cross. And the father is getting him ready for the challenges that are to come. When you read through the Bible, people who did great things for God, you'll find that they never did them out of the blue. Their whole life and little details that seem unimportant were preparing them all the way along. When David fights Goliath, David says to Saul, he says, listen, I've already killed the bear. I've already killed the lion. He says when they came, I read the story yesterday. He says when they came at me and they attacked me, the idea is like they got up on him. He says, I grabbed it by the fur and I killed it. In case you haven't figured out, David is not a seven-year-old boy when he goes to fight Goliath. He's killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. You know there's facial hair involved. You just know, right? But all of this has been leading up to preparation. And we get this idea in our head like David's this little shepherd boy, you know, just chilling, playing some harp, watching the sheep. 
And then out of the blue, he turns into this giant killer. It's, it's just not true. His whole life had been preparation for that. His whole life had been preparation for that. And so when we're taken out into the wilderness and Jesus is taken into the wilderness, it's preparation for what is to come. If you want to see God move mightily in your life, you've got to let him build you up to it. And you've got to say yes to every single challenge that he sends your way. Jesus accomplished the greatest things any human beings ever accomplished. But in order to do those things, he had to know one thing. He had to know that he could trust the Father completely. You think about the level of trust Jesus had. He had to trust that if he died, he would come back from the dead. That's a high level of trust. And Jesus has to have that in the Father. I want you to know that God wants to do great things in your life. He does. Every single one of us. He wants to do great things in our life. He wants to do miracles in your life. He wants you to see his power with your own eyes, not to sit around telling people stories about other people who saw God's power, but to be able to say, this is what God did in my life. This happened to me. That's how I know it's real. That's what he wants for you. And I hope you want to see those things in your life too. But, but if things are going to happen in your life, you need to strengthen your spiritual muscles. And so do I. And the way that you do that is by trusting God when he leads you into challenges. And if you'll trust him, you'll overcome that challenge. And when the next one comes, you'll be able to look back and say, listen, God already took me through this. I've already killed the lion. I've already killed the bear. You're just the next one. Let's do this. And faith builds on faith. It builds on faith. It builds on faith. God wants to see you see his power in your life again and again and again. For me, this gets exciting because when you realize the exponential work of faith in your life, you'll be able to say, listen, if, if I can trust God with this level in my life right now, what does this look like when I'm 40, when I'm 50, when I'm 60? Wherever you are, this should be encouraging because it means wherever you are now, if you'll start trusting God, his work in your life will be exponentially greater in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. That's why I'm a freak about trying to raise my kids to have a high level of faith. I think what, what would happen if my kids could have my faith that I have now by the age of 10? Then what does 30 look like for them? What does 40 look like for them? Greater and greater things. That's how faith works it's the key to the christian life what often happens to us is you know we get to a certain level here and god says trust me trust me and we say no maybe not even consciously but we we just don't follow in this one area the truth is you don't get to skip that step it's not a ladder where you can just say i'm going to skip that rung and go to the next one you will stay there and I tell you this because I love you. You will stay there till the day you die or until the day you trust God. And it is better to trust God and experience the greater things of God. But you don't get to skip it. And sometimes if you feel like your faith is just not growing, it's good to just go back and say, well, what was the last thing God asked me to trust him with? And did I say yes or did I say no? So Jesus is, once again, out in the wilderness. And this is on your outline. Jesus trusts the leading of the Holy Spirit. He trusts the leading of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't freak out and say, 
well, wait a minute. Uh, if I am walking with the Holy Spirit, why am I in the wilderness? Where's, where's the blessing? Uh, where's the grass meadow? He just trusts that the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing, that the Father has his best in heart, his best in mind. And so in doing this, Jesus is once again walking in our shoes as a human being. He's submitting himself to the ultimate temptation by the ultimate tempter so that we'll never be able to say, yeah, but Jesus doesn't know what it's like to be tempted. He knows. Luke makes this profound observation. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward when they had ended, he was hungry. It's profound. But that tends to happen when you haven't eaten for 40 days. Notice this too, and we're almost done today. The Israelites spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness when they escaped out of Egypt. They were never meant to spend 40 years there. What happened is within the first 40 days, they lost faith in God. They came out of Egypt, they found themselves in the wilderness, and they said, listen, if God's with us, then we wouldn't be in the wilderness. And they lost faith in God. And as a consequence, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus is literally reenacting Israel's history, and he's redeeming it. He's going to go into the wilderness again. But in his 40 days, he's not going to lose faith. He's going to keep faith, and then God's going to bring him out of that wilderness. We're going to see the, the culmination of that next week. So Jesus is alone. He's isolated. He's hungry. He's about to be intensely tempted by Satan himself. And the Holy Spirit has orchestrated all of this, all of it. When you make the decision to become a follower of Jesus, you might be surprised when you quickly find yourself in the wilderness. You might be thinking, I, I thought God was supposed to make my life better. I thought he was supposed to make everything better, and here I am, isolated. Here I am, alone. Here I am, hungry for relationships, a spouse, a family, a, a good life. And I'm being intensely tempted. I'm just in the wilderness. What, what's going on? I want you to know that God is with you. God is for you. And like any good father, he is giving you the one thing that you need most desperately right now in your life. If you're going to make it, if you're going to live in the amazing life that God has planned for you, you need one thing, desperately. You need to know that you can completely trust the Father. You need to know that you can completely trust the Father. Until that is a settled issue, you will choose things less than his best for you. You will. God draws us into the wilderness so that we can learn to trust him all over again with every need, with every longing, every desire, every dream, everything. That's what you need. And so the Father has brought you into the wilderness so that you can learn as quickly as possible the one thing you need to learn most. And if that's you, let me encourage you to accept his invitation to trust him. Don't follow the path of the Israelites and lose faith. You know, when the Apostle Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he didn't go right into an amazing ministry. He withdrew. He went to a small town in the wilderness and he just figured out what he really believed. And this is a special season for you if you're in the wilderness. This is a time for you where God has given you time to get to know him. Pour yourself into his word. Pour yourself into prayer. Pour yourself into getting to know him. God has isolated you with a divine purpose and a divine reason. This is your time to get to know him. 
once you know him and trust him, then he can give you the great relationships he wants to give you. He can give you the great life that he wants to give you. Accept his invitation today. And maybe you're a believer here, but you find yourself in the wilderness and you're wondering what you're doing there. Where's the blessed life? Where's the abundance? Where is it? God has probably called you out as well because he's saying, listen, I want you to remember what it means to trust me. I want you to remember. I want you to discover all over again what it means to trust me with everything. And once we have that settled again, then we'll go forward and we'll start to rebuild all over again. But I want to encourage you, do not, don't stay at that one level. Don't stay at one level saying no when God is saying, trust me. There is so much more of God. There is so much more of life that he wants to give you. Give it to God. Give it to God. You'll be amazed what he'll do in your life.